welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. Hello! Thank you for joining us again today for another conversation about some of our favourite films. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at uh, Kinotomic. We're also open for abuse, adulation, and everything in between at kinotomic at gmail.com. Today, we have our last episode, uh, part of our Buster Keaton Spectacular, uh, Birthday Spectacular, and we shall discuss the first film that he made under the new contract with MGM, the um, 1928's The Cameraman. Here, are, here is a quick synopsis. Hopelessly in love with a woman working at MGM Studios, a clumsy man attempts to become a motion picture cameraman to be close to the object of his desire. So, Nick, what did you think of the cameraman? I mean, first off, I mean, I can't believe it's been three weeks already when we're talking about Buster Keaton. I know. Um, it's really weird, isn't it? Like, well, I'll find some other films that we can we can watch and discuss. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> If you um, miss him, I'm sure we can we can come to some arrangement. I, I, I just wanted to make sure you're okay. Like we've had a pretty strong Buster Keaton thing. I, I thought I thought maybe you might be getting the wrong impression and thinking this was turning into a Buster Keaton podcast. But um, <laughs> no, no, we're I, moving I, to I, Halloween next week, so stay tuned. We are, we are, and I'm um, looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, so the the cameraman, the cameraman. Um. All right. I think this film is 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 really interesting um in that it kind of shows you know at least for me a side of Buster Keaton that I hadn't really seen before on screen. Um so you kind of got to bear with me a little bit. Um so you know uh films that I've seen of him so I've got The General, Sherlock Jr, The Playhouse, uh The Railroader, uh Steamboat Bill Jr and then uh last week's Alf Hospitality. So that's six films. Um, which for me is quite a sizable chunk of, of an actor's work to have seen. And then this will be the seventh, uh, The Cameraman. Um, and this is the first time that I've kind of seen this side of him, and that is one of uh, masculinity. So, kind of got to bear with me, like I said, bear with me. Um, so th- there's a scene in this where he goes to a swimming pool on a, on a date, um, which is... I've never heard anyone take anybody to a swimming pool on a date before, but, um, <laughs> and then we are, you know, we are presented with Buster, you know, not only as, as a man, but as someone who has a, quite an aggressive side, you know, it's probably the most vocal I've seen him on screen. Obviously we can't hear it cause it's a silent film, but he, you know, his is probably the most vocal I've seen him. Um, you know, his, his figure and his stature is, you know, it's still kind of played for laughs, not only in this sequence, but throughout the film. Um, but in this, there's a bit where he's in it, this, the changing room, and it's very, very claustrophobic, and he's stood next to this gigantic guy, and the joke is is that they're, you know, trying to take the get changed and stuff, and, you know, there's not enough room for both of them, so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a bit farcical, really. And for a brief... For a brief little bit, we kind of, as an audience, we kind of get a look into Buster's actual physique, not as you know Buster as the 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 character on the screen, but as a, a man, as an actor, as a performer. You know, much in the same way how you know we see our modern day superheroes. You know, think about you know the scenes in. I don't know, like the Thor movies where they, you know, Chris Hemsworth will have to have the obligatory, you know, you know, show off kind of thing to, to yeah. show off all of his muscles. And here we kind of, we don't, it's not actually intended. We just kind of, it's kind of just there. We see his arms and stuff and we kind of see him as not as a small, weak man as he is often portrayed to be, but as a fit, athletic actor. Um, and... <laughs> It what this has done is kind of inadvertently broken an illusion for me. Wow. Um, so, and I don't think it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I mean, I it's just it's just kind of weird. Do you do you want to kind of get understand what I mean? Um, 
<laughs> as, about, as someone who's seen that, that particular scene many, 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 many times, I do understand what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, yeah, I mean, I... So it's just it's just a bit, it's just a bit weird because his stature and I was before this had started there was a sequence where he was walking along the, down the street next to um, the the secretary Sally and it was a it was a full shot it was the you know whole bodies were both in shot walking down the street you know you could see all of them and both of them were kind of level height and obviously you know Buster is smaller than most men you know it's obviously played for a joke in this. You know, all the other cameramen are obviously a bit more bigger than he is. Um, you know, so his, his stature is kind of all, you know, it's just that it was to play for a joke and his um, his physique as well. Mm -hmm. But for, for, Which is really weird because we see him do these incredible stunts and we see him do this, the running as well, the way he runs. And yeah, you can't exactly be unfit doing that. So it's not really, a, it shouldn't be a surprise to me that this, Absolutely. you know, Buster Keaton should have, you know, what appears to be a six pack and, yes. you know, actual muscles. And, but you know what I mean? So it's it's the first time we've seen, I've seen him on screen actually showing some kind of portrayal of masculinity that is on a par with, I don't know, like Jackie Chan from last week, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you do, I, yeah, I'm trying to think, give Kenny yeah, what yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I kind of think, kind of following on from that, what I feel the film does very, very well is kind of having these two sides of Buster being present in the film. So we, 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 have, we have the Buster surrogate, um, you know, in the film, the, the cameraman who, you know, he's, he's seen as a joke, you know, someone who tries his hardest to, but is kind of let down by outside forces or something kind of goes wrong and then when he finally gets a little bit lucky it kind of then shows up how brilliant of a man he actually is which kind of could be saying something about his own stature at the time his own you know career at the time yeah. um the opening text you know kind of says something along the lines of you know idolizing the newsreel cameraman you know you know the images of cameramen in, in war zones etc and then it says something along the lines of you know, then there are the other photographers or something like that. And then it's got a cutting to Buster with his tin pot thing. And tin type. Tin type, yeah. And what I kind of kind of think is that what I kind of want to know really for you in a minute is like, would this be kind of him giving his own view on where he feels he is at this stage in his career? Um, because from what I can gather from going forward, you know, he never really reached these heights again. Um, you know, I mean, a few other notes before I, we, you know, just a couple of other things. Um, there was some big trouble in Little China, um, with the Tong Wars, um, which was vaguely racist, um, and, and a bit, it's quite a bit racist. Um, and then, you know, it was always good seeing where, um, Marcel the monkey from Friends started out. Yeah. So <laughs> I think her name uh, in this one is called Josephine, and she is brilliant. She's brilliant. The the monkey was pretty, pretty, pretty excellent. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the film a lot, and I I think out of this films, out of all the films I've seen of his, I think this is the one film where I, I've seen from him where I feel that there is the most kind of subtext and meaning behind it. Hmm. Um. As in, like it's maybe i don't want to say like it's most personal but like i could be wrong in saying that but you know how some some artists like the film that we'll be talking about in a bit kind of have a film where it's all like autobiographical but they're also trying to say something about what's going on in their you know careers going on at that moment with a film yeah. that's coming out whether it's intentional or not but i kind of can kind of see that with buster keaton in this in this film um, okay. Especially seen as the name of the newsreel company that he's trying to get in at is called MGM. Yeah, um, of course. So yeah, I mean, would okay. would you kind of follow follow where I'm coming yeah, from with this? Um, I yeah, I do and I don't. I think for me, having read quite a bit about where 
Buster Keaton's career was at the time. It, I mean, with hindsight, he knows that he did. He made a mistake signing with MGM, but at the time, he probably didn't realize how much of a mistake it was. Um. So there might be some of that sort of duality and like now I've signed up with this big big um studio. I think MGM at the time was was the biggest studio in Hollywood. So signing him on was quite an achievement. So if you think about it like that, you're like, yeah, baby Buster was like the he had the winning ticket on this one. So he want he wants to to show that on in in on the film at the same time he didn't have all the creative control that he had previously so most of the um, i mean it was more like 50 50 so you have you see him but it's not his old it's not his old self it's not the whole persona that we've we've seen grow from from the from the short films that he did with with um Fatty Arbuckle um until the the Steamboat Bill Jr. with this film there's slightly different thing going on and I'll explain that in a minute there is a so what how Buster worked was he would start with an idea so he would have like an idea of, of, of a script he would have like the beginning maybe the ending and then figure out the the middle as as he went along along which is why some of I think some of your observations about previous films that I made you watch were that they were quite sketchy and the, the, the plot didn't really make that much sense but I think that's kind of where his strengths lie um, and also with the, so with this he had a bit of a clash with um, Irving Thalberg when he signed on M at MGM because Thalberg wanted a full script before he started shooting. So Thalberg would be like, okay, so this is what we're doing. We have full script, we have the full um, cast and crew, and then we're going to go on location and shoot. Uh, the location would be New York. So he gave him a crew, and most of the people in his crew were the people he'd worked with before. So you have... Clyde Brookman, who who sort of was the gag writer, like the main idea man. You had Fred um, Gabory, who was his um, like technical advisor, and um, you had um, most of the other like gag writers that he worked with. But on top of that, MGM gave him many more art, many more gag writers, and many more like technicians. Um, so for this. Um, um, Buster was was not was kind of lost because he thought that there were so many um, so many other people that he had to listen to. So, in according to biography to, to Buster Keaton's biography, each of these people, each of these technical studio men, were focused on their craft, wanting to stand out so they can keep their basically keep their job at the studio, or maybe get assigned new more prominent assignments. So each of them were kind of trying to make their bit of the work stand out and they, did, they didn't really work for the benefit of the collective film. So they were like, they didn't really see themselves as working in a team. And Buster didn't really work like that. He, had a, he, had, didn't, he didn't start with a finished script. Um, he, if he, got, he would stop shooting because he had an idea and then if he got stuck, he'd stop for a day or two and play baseball until inspiration struck um, that's basically what happened and with with the cameraman Thalberg forced him to basically have people writing the script for him and there was ridiculous threads of the plot that I, I don't even want to mention uh, most of which didn't make it into the final cut because they were too ridiculous it's like too many cooks you know yeah so um but part of the script was like the, at the beginning of the script there was they had to go to new york and shoot so in the script the tintype photographer is a nobody a face in the crowd that nobody knows so when he went to new york to start shooting 
he was, of course, immediately recognized on the street. And he was mobbed and then they had to, they couldn't film. They, they basically had to sort of halt shooting and call LA and go like, well, we can't shoot on the streets of, of New York because everyone knows Buster Keaton and everyone's going to start sh- shouting. And uh, so what they did was like, okay, let's just go and shoot a few days here and there um, in like early, early on Sunday mornings. And then the rest of the time, let's improvise, because that's what Buster Keaton did best, was let him, like, improvise. So there, there's, like, 50... There's improv in this in this um, production. You have the baseball scene, uh, where he's he's sort of playing all the all the people in, in the baseball game. I don't even know what... Like, all the positions. Is all, that the what it's all, all the players. All the players. Yeah, so first baseman, pitcher, Base, that's uh, yeah. Oh, first base, yeah. yeah, second. So and and then the uh, piggy bank scene where he's trying to sort of break the bank and he can't make it. Um, so they let him basically do a bit of improv. One of the improvisation scenes was also the uh, the one that you mentioned, with the dressing room. Um, it was kind of on the fly bit added by Buster Heaton. And he um, he plays here with um, Edward Brophy, who was actually, I think he was a production manager. He wasn't even an actor, but he looked the part because they wanted someone who was big enough to maybe seem like a menace, but not too big. Because he's not too tall. He's kind of the same height as, as Buster, but he's kind of like bigger, fatter, um, but not as big as say joe joe roberts was so um it's 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 playing on the idea that it's not the kind of man that he would be able to throw buster out um of the of the changing room and and just like through the wall like it would happen in, in the olden days um so they they basically crammed up in there um they didn't rehearse at all so and they just ad-libbed the whole gag in a single take and then, of course, this launched uh, Brophy's career. He had a um, career as a comedian for like 30 years or more. And yeah, so going back to the like creative control and the changes that Buster was experiencing at MGM, according to a biography by Rudy Blesch, he came on the set on the first day of shooting and unaware of his reduced status as actor only began to sort of look for comedy bits and request requested props and trying to sort of trying things out like he had before and then the director uh, edward sedwick uh, who hadn't worked with buster before sort of like took him aside and told him that he was undermining his directorial authority so buster was like you know a bit taken aback but he, he the good sport that he was he apologized and let him, let Sedwick run the show um, but then later on Sedwick just couldn't get the setups he wanted and just couldn't get the actors involved in to understand what he what he meant so he, he asked he he went to Buster and he asked to take over because most of the most of the people that in terms of the technicians and the people that he worked with were kind of new Buster's way of working. So Buster was like regaining slightly control of the scene and he 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 began he began to call Sedwick Jr. and they just they got it they hit it off and they became really cool, cool friends. Um so yeah I think this is one of the films that there's still a glimpse of Keaton genius, particularly because, you know, in when they filmed filmed in New York there was there wasn't a studio head like breathing down their necks, uh, so they could play a little, but at the same time, there was still a lot of creative control, um, and they even made him shoot an ending where he's smiling, which was, which was so much like a, a, almost a sacrilege, because there's never been a smile in any Buster Keaton film. And they previewed it with like a test audience, and of course, the audiences hated it. And then they had to sort of um, change the ending to what you see now. 
So basically, what I'm trying to say is that the, the studio didn't understand what Keechan, what, what to do with Keechan's genius, and they kind of started messing around with his persona, which is why you kind of see him as a more masculine type, and you have him as, as slightly different. I mean, for instance, you, you've mentioned that there's, there's stuff that you don't see him do, and you find a different persona to him. And I think this is one of the most romantic films that he's done. Um, and he, you don't see him do many pratfalls or many like... I think, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this is probably the one where I see him kind of doing the most kind of like acting. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, it's the most... It's the most... I know it sounds pretty weird to say because he's an actor, but he's a performer. But, like, this is the most acting he's done I yeah, think, in the films yeah. that I've definitely seen of him. And yeah, so it's just he he's he's kind of a different character from the one that we're used to. He's he's romantic, he's sensible, um and even when when you he's declaring his love to this woman, but it, it's slightly more it's slightly sad because you feel sorry for him. And you never felt sorry for a Buster Keaton character before. And he, even his main rival, the, the other cameraman, is kind of cruel and a bully, but not in a way that Joe, Joe Roberts was bully, that he would just grab him and just throw him across the stage. It was, he's, he's more of a bully on, on more than a physical level. And that's, I think that's what makes the audiences feel sorry for Buster. And it, it's something that has never happened before. I think uh, you're right because it was like he didn't have his physicality, but he was always kind of like one step ahead in terms of like mentally one step ahead. Yeah. Whereas this guy was scheming. Yeah. And yeah. like he was, and that doesn't kind of work with Buster because then what has he, you know, he, there's only so much that he has to yeah. bring, and it exactly. doesn't. Yeah. It yeah it doesn't it doesn't quite work. I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy this. I'm just saying like no. It just, I mean I I really just felt, love this it felt, film. It felt different. It did feel different. It did. It's it's. And I think at one point, the legend has it that when when he was on on a downward slope, drinking and just about to get fired from MGM, which he did in nineteen I think nineteen thirty three. Um, he he started um shouting at some of the studio heads that you 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 warped my character because he had he had strict rules and he had strict um things that he wouldn't do. He would never ask the audience for pity. That was never Buster. That was never him. But in this one, you kind of start to see it. You kind of start to see you you kind of pity him when he's in the car and he's outside and he's being rained on. And that's kind of pity, and you, you've, I don't know, you've not seen that. It's it's not self-inflicted. It's something that someone else makes him do. It's not yeah, like in no. one week where he's he's done it for, to himself. Yeah. No. I, yeah. I kind of get what you mean. Like, um, say, like in a similar scenario with the waterfall from last week. Yeah. In our hospitality, like I didn't feel pity for him. No. Getting soaked by a waterfall that was kind of coming over. It was just like he's put himself in that situation. Whereas in this, like they put the roof up. There's only two seats, and then he's stuck in the pretty much what is a bitch seat. Yeah. Out the back, and then yeah. he's just left to, to kind of be in the pouring rain. Yeah, he's like the third um, wheel. Um, and yeah, so, and also one, one other thing that I thought would be interesting to mention is the pratfalls, he's not allowed to do them anymore because he's considered an asset to the studio, so he can't hurt himself. And in the sec, the, the second film he's done, he's doing with, with MGM called Spite Marriage, 1929, there is, I think that's that one film where someone else is doing the stunts for him because there's a scene where he's in a car and the car falls into the water and he can't he's supposed to jump out of the car as the car is going into the water and they didn't let him do that because if he hurt himself it would be the investment going it would not be a stuntman 
So you kind of see the frustration that that burst that would start that would start to pile up on Buster's psyche, uh, which will lead him to drink and yeah. Anyway, I don't want to um, end on a downer, so I'll just say that in this film, Buster Keaton teaches us how to flirt while the bo the bottom half of our face is covered, and I think that's that's something that we could all use today. <laughs> that's very very true. I love that. I think I love that scene where he's at, he's waiting for her to finish, and he's he's got the tin type camera thing, and there's the um, board in front of him and you can you know you can only see his eyes as if he was wearing a face mask um and and you see him and he's just those eyes just so beautiful but yeah i mean i i i'm glad that you liked this film and there is there is still something of of the Buster keaton magic in it but it's kind of becoming more and more diluted because there's so many other factors but I still, I, I still love this film very much, and I was very. Um, I think I saw this for the first time um, at a. Um, I saw this for the first time at the uh, with an audience um, during the twenty fourteen Buster Keaton season at the BFI. I think it was a four K restoration, uh, because this film was also almost lost uh, forever. And the the master copy of it used today was made using a print that was found in Paris in 1968, and a a, a master positive copy of the whole film was also found in 1991. And there's there's different copies, and the the quality varies dramatically. So I think that's why they had to sort of do a full 4K restoration. And the the film was given as an example uh, of perfect comedy by the studio and they would um the MGM studio would get directors producers to watch and learn and i think in in um the film by the way was was the first film that made a lot of money at the box office um the first Buster Keaton film in like 3 years because he had so he had the general, he had college, he had um, Steamboat Bill Jr. So these three films had made money. So this was was the fourth. If he'd if if this had also tanked, it would have been the fourth in a row to to not make any money, and it would have been yeah, not good. Um. So yeah, it was quite well received, and it made quite a lot of money, and it was considered to be a hit. And um, yeah, it's the you last. You could argue that you could argue then that that was kind of that was it that kind of signalled his downfall. Then it was yeah, it kind of sealed his fate. Yeah, it sealed his fate. If the movie would a failure, then MGM would have either you know what either let him see out his contract, or or like you know let him go, and yeah. then he would have been free to kind of do what he want. Arguably not on a bigger scale, on a big scale like this, but then he would have yeah. kind of arguably go back to doing what he was best at um so arguably that the fact that the cameraman was a success is kind of maybe what sealed his downfall because yeah mgm then were like well he is a valuable asset after all we need to kind of protect this at all costs yeah and just to note that he was i think he was the third best paid actor at mgm so he had a lot of money back then i mean it was a really good contract that they gave him yeah. But they took away his sort of creative freedom, so he couldn't do platforms because he was an asset, he was an investment. He had to listen to other directors. After this film, he couldn't actually work with, with Fred Gabbery anymore, who was his technical advisor and who was doing all the art production. So, like, technical and art production, it was... Um, and art, um, Fred Gabbery was, was a very good friend of his, and they worked together very, very well. And it, they always bounce ideas of each other, and they always sort of, um, you know, found magic together. And because Fred was made to work on like Norma Shearer films or whatnot, it, he couldn't actually find a spark anymore, unfortunately. So this is la the last great Buster Keaton film. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it kind of. 
it does it does a very i think it does a very very good job of, of showing like the yeah, the the film does and i think the context behind it does a very very good job of showing that the battle for creativity like the struggle yeah. For, yeah. for for power um for getting a vision out there um so yeah i mean it, it, are those your notes on on the camera yeah i'm done with the notes yeah. I'm, I'm i'm done with this so speaking of visions i think yeah <laughs> i was trying the segue then i hope it worked um <laughs> yeah so we go from a vision um that you know we, we saw kind of come to fruition then was you know taken away from him really and then um to to a vision that can't get a break <laughs> um so this is 1995's living in oblivion directed by tom decilio decillo um starring steve buscemi catherine catherine keener dermot moroni uh peter dinklage uh kevin corrigan shows up in a small bit part um yeah so i got a bit of a brief synopsis uh nick is the director of a low-budget indie film he tries to keep everything together as his production is played with an insecure actress, a megalomaniac star, a pretentious beret wearing director of photography, and lousy catering. Dividing into three acts, each representing a different scene to shoot, this film is an essential for amateur filmmakers. Um, which I will go into a little bit. So, Danny, what did you think of Living in Oblivion? <laughs> oh, it was it was brilliant. I mean, I... Ah, uh, the mo—I—I I don't know. It was just the multiple takes at the beginning made me feel physically uncomfortable <laughs> because I was—I felt I was—I was Nick, I was the director, and then I wanted everything to go right, and I was like on the edge of my seat, wanting the actors to get the take and to do a good job, and then something would happen, like you know, the Mick would come in in the frame, and. And then something would explode in the background, and then noise, and then it was so frustrating. I was like, <sighs> and then and because I, I didn't realize I didn't really know what sort of comedy I was I was ex I was expecting. So I was like, okay, this is com this is com is this comedy? I'm not laughing. I'm feeling quite uncomfortable and frustrated. And then and then you have the the perfect acting scene that is not on camera and i was just laughing i'm still laughing at it you know you have these two characters you have these two actresses and they have the perfect scene and, and the cameraman is in the bathroom throwing up and you're like oh my god this is not happening Oh, it was just yeah. I I laughed very very much. I really really enjoyed it. Um, I love. I mean, I just yeah. I wanted to strangle uh that woman Wanda. I I just oh, she was just getting on my nerves every time she was shouting into the walkie talkie. I was just like, just shut up. And that Palomino dude, he was just. <laughs> an idiot idiotic character do we know who he was supposed to be imitating uh there are theories but apparently it's not true um i'll get into that i'll get okay, into cool. get into that um but yeah i really enjoyed it I, I i didn't know much of this filmmaker but i really really enjoyed his work i looking at the cast i mean Catherine keener i don't think she's ever been more beautiful than in this film I really, really loved her in it. I mean, I've known her from, I don't know, being John Markovich. Um, she was in, well, Get Out. Um, she was, I mean, if you've seen The Ballad of Jack and Rose, she was in there and she did a really good job acting with Daniel Day-Lewis, which is quite an achievement. And, of course, Peter, Peter Dinklage, I mean, he's brilliant. I loved his angry outburst and it was so true. I mean, yeah. Let's just make it surreal and add a dwarf in it. <laughs> I love him. I just wanted to give him a hug. 
And yeah, I wanted a stronger Wanda. I don't know who um, the name of the actress playing Wanda. Is it Wanda? The... Uh, Wanda, yeah. So uh, Danielle von Cernek. Um, I, I wanted she's... to strangle her with her own colourful shirt. Yeah, she's she's been in... She's actually the... Yeah, so she's just been in a lot of bit parts over the years kind of thing. A lot of TV work. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, how can you cheat on Dermot Maroney? I mean, he was so cute with the eye patch. I mean, he's so cute. He plays Wolf with so, like, deadpan and kind of stupid, but you kind of like him. You can't help but, like... he He's got this pout that I, I found quite endearing. And, like, very, like, straight face. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, okay, so Steve Buscemi. With his I, amazing long hair. I love him so much. The first film I ever saw him in was Con Air, okay? And I was not ready. I was never... I mean, you have in Con Air, the entrance he makes is legendary. And you get the exact opposite of what you're expecting, and I was not ready. So I've loved him ever since, and he's a genius and deserves all the awards and accolades and all the fruit shapes and sizes. And I think he was very good in this. I think he was just brilliant. And there was incredible chemistry between him and Catherine Keener. I think it's just, yeah. And if you want, I mean, I, can, I can't get enough of him, and he's, 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 he's a dear... Uh, favorite actor of mine, and I was just very, very happy to see him, in, and he's just brilliant. In a leading role as well. Yeah, I know, I know. You don't really much see. I mean, you. See, I'm kind of used to him to seeing him in a really reading leading role because I've seen him in Boardwalk Empire, which, by the way, he plays a very sexy man. I find. <laughs> um, but I love but his, period dramas his... anyway, so. But his parts, like, you know, in, in Reservoir Dogs, you know, he's part of an ensemble, in Fargo, and in Big Lebowski, you know, he's supporting from the, the oh. main stars, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's always, he's never been, like, one of the main, he's never been the, the, the lead. Not, he's always yeah, been at, at least not of, in the 90s. At least not in the 90s, yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, seeing him in this kind of, yeah, doing... Kind of the lead performance is really, really quite cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoy it, and uh, and uh, as a, as a Steve Buscemi fan, seeing him the lead was quite rewarding because you you know how how talented he is, so you kind of want him to be the focus, and in this one he was. So thank you for making me watch this. I really enjoyed it. Yes, yeah, alright. I mean, I. I first saw this last year. Um, I can't. I think I was listening to a screenwriting podcast um, or on on something, and I think one of the they, they mentioned whoever I was listening to was kind of talking about movies about the making of filmmaking, and they were like, "Living Oblivion's the greatest film about filmmaking," and I was like, "Oh, I have to watch this film," and so you know, picked found a DVD and and, and watched it, and and was kind of blown away that I'd never heard of this film before. Um, you know, it came out in 1995. It's an indie film. It's kind of about indie filmmaking. Um, you think about the, the the films that came out in the early 90s and, um, you know, Sex, Lies, Videotape and then Clerks and Reservoir Dogs and, you yeah. know, this this indie boom, obviously, you know, linked to, to uh, the, the person who shall not be named. But the kind of, it's all linked, it's all linked to Modern like Heart? the indie movement and, um, <laughs> Yeah. So, and having and there's 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 like kind of really quite cool um like nineties capsule stuff going on. Like the fact that the dream dream sequence, there has to be a dream sequence. Yeah. Right. Because you know every indie movie in the nineties had a dream sequence because they all wanted to be David Lynch, and obviously they're gonna put a dwarf in it, and <laughs> you know with the spoke machine, like the weird look, you know, and it, it had to be in there. And then there was the bit with um, uh, Chad, uh, Chad Palomino, who was like, you know, I only agreed to work with you because I heard you were tight with Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> um, which got a big laugh out of me because uh, it's such a great line saying that to Steve, Steve Buscemi. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of like this, like 
like like capsule into the 90s 90s filmmaking and an indie world and basically tom decilio decilio i couldn't get his name wrong he was uh he started off as a cinematographer for jim jarmusch's uh for, for jim jarmusch really uh worked oh. on his uh, debut feature film uh, permanent vacation and then worked with uh, jarmusch on uh, stranger than paradise and in 2003's uh, coffee and cigarettes um nice and yeah so apparently he kind of got the inspiration um for the film he you know when he was working on his own debut feature film johnny suede and in his kind of in his in his struggle to kind of make his next intended film which is a film that ended up getting made called box of moonlight um kind of because of all like this the narrative that came out around the film about you know the autobiographical nature a lot of people kind of misinterpreted that chad palomino was in fact based on brad pitt I read that it wasn't. Yeah, but that's what I mean. That a lot of people thought it was, but it wasn't. Uh, it kind of confirmed on the on the DVD commentary that it wasn't true. Um, Brad Pitt was actually meant to play the part of Chad um, up until the time of shooting of the film, but then kind of couldn't due to scheduling conflicts. And then you know James uh, Legrasse was brought in, um, who I did thought I thought did a good job. I thought a really yeah, really good job yeah. in that role because um, he kind of has this. He doesn't have the look of a star like Catherine Keener, but he kind of does have the look of the kind of an actor that will do what Chad did. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Which is kind of take over and trying to be the one, the, you know, the, the one that's in charge kind of thing. It kind of made me think of Joy Tribbiani. <laughs> yeah, that's maybe, yeah. Like really idiotic, but quite vain and all about himself because in, in in that scene where he's just you know in the in the hotel room he always has to have the camera on him and he's trying to get like the director to do what he wants so he can get more screen time yeah but i, th- I know that i think joey's a bit more kind-hearted than chad like, yeah joey's yeah. a lot more kind-hearted than chad like I see Joey, you know, doing with his what friends, but but on 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 screen, he would he would probably want to get you know, be a bit unprofessional in trying to get himself more screen time. I don't know, okay. like okay. I, it, the idea of a, a pretty face and but no brains kind of made me think of him. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I got a quote from from Tom DeSillo that from uh, this article on the Decider, which came out a couple of months ago actually, because this the film had its twenty fifth anniversary. So there was quite a few. There was a few articles going around during the rounds about the film, um, and uh, one from Abby Bender. This article from Abby Bender on on Decider kind of had an interview with Tom Tom DeSillo, um, and I quote. I was. I just was always fascinated from the very beginning by what happens offset, just literally three inches away from what the camera is showing. I found that a lot of times that drama is more interesting. What you're trying to film, <laughs> which it does a very very good job of. Yeah, <laughs> good job of yeah, this as well. yeah. Um, and I, I, that's I, that's what I mean. Like, I, I think the job is the the job that's being shown on screen of trying to make a film. It's just one of just struggle and just having hit after hit after <laughs> hit and just um i myself tried i, I myself made a, a five minute short film in my in my early 20s and it's terrible and you should never watch it but i think you made me watch my it. my experience making that was on a par with the feelings that steve buscemi was getting was just like everything <laughs> you, you the what you wanted to do was not being done and it was a really case of frustration it was a case of yeah i can't win what what can i do to get this made the way i want it to be made and it was kind of like an eye-opening experience because it was like wow this is a lot harder than it looks <laughs> yeah it is and that's why i find it quite frustrating and i was like physically uncomfortable because i felt myself being the director and like i want to get that right and you have the lighting you have to worry about the lighting the sound the camera the zoom the out of focus, the light bulbs exploding in the background, people forgetting their lines, and you know everything happens. You know what could possibly go wrong will go wrong, and yeah, yeah and I I loved. I think I wanted to say that I loved the 
think there's a conversation with the taxi driver who asks him, how did you become a director? Something like that. And he well, says, how, to, how, did, how, did you, how did you become a cinematographer? And he says, oh, I'm actually the director. Yeah. And then he's like, how did you become a director? And he's like, hmm. He doesn't actually answer, I don't think. No, I don't think he did. But it's one of those things like, how did you get about... Because, and he's kind of thinking like, do I, is, it, is this really what I want to do? I don't know anymore. Yeah. And you kind of get to that point at the end of the film where yeah. it's just like everything... It's kind of just... He's just had enough and he's just given up. And then that's the moment you know that's the moment and i think yeah. you know the film the film is a love letter to this this kind of frustration and the creative struggles when it comes to filmmaking when it comes to kind of the act of creation um you know i don't think the film is about filmmaking intended only for filmmakers which is kind of how it's kind of been almost marketed as or kind of said about in terms with other people talking about the film um, I kind of think it's more generally about the general struggle of doing anything you want to do, anything you want to love. Yeah. Um, think about the struggles that me and you have with doing this podcast week in, week out. You know, think about the struggles <laughs> we us. had. Think, think about the struggles we had trying to get this podcast started. Um, yeah. all, all the all the audio issues and, and stuff that we went <laughs> through and the editing stuff we went through. Like, you know, a lot of people, listeners don't know that, don't, obviously don't know all this, but like we went through. They like, don't need some... to know this. <laughs> We're fine. <laughs> yeah, Let's not like... complain. But no, I'm just, like you said, like you understand what I mean. Like, you know, we, we're doing something we're really enjoying doing, but it, it took a lot of hard work to get there. And I think this film is very much a love letter to that hard to that, work. Yeah. And I think it shows that when you are so close to ending and when you're so close to giving up, when you're packing away the camera, that's the moment when the perfect yes. the moment thing will happen and it shows that you've not to give up because it will happen. That was a lovely you... scene, by the way. It was that. a lovely scene. And the fact that it was his mum as well. I and... know, I know. That was so cute. See, mums are good. That's what mums are for. <laughs> Even if she was men mentally unwell. Yeah, um... well, she was still the mum. <laughs> she was still the mum, yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I really, really like this film. I think it's a really quite an underrated gem, and I I, th I do think it's the kind of film that should be seen by more people. Yeah, it um, was brilliant. Thank you for making me watch it. No, that's right. You you hadn't heard of this film before, had no, you? No, no, I hadn't. No, and it was, like I said, it was just lovely to see the spotlight on Steve Buscemi because he's, you can see he can carry the lead in a film. He can do it. He can, he can. Yes, he can, and he doesn't need to work with Quentin Tarantino either. Yeah. Or the Co yeah. or the Coen brothers, um, uh, or or uh, or Michael Bay actually, because he's worked with Michael Bay twice, oh. three times, actually. Wow, I was wondering how long it would take it to measure Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, no, he's worked with Michael Bay more times than that, I think. Um, okay. I'm not actually. I'm not going to bore our listeners with how many Michael Bay films uh, that Steve Buscemi is. Say Michael Bay one more time. <laughs> the answer is the the answer is four. By the way, um, so anyway, well, that's, I think I think I think that's kind of like a good good place to kind of stop. Um, really talking about these two films. Um, it's just it's just nice to be talking about like the the. the the, the struggle in making something you know and the, the the passion that's there and the intention that's there and it will go right one day you just gotta kind of keep trying and i think both films kind of show that yeah um which is really quite pace. nice yes yes um so i don't know if, if you've got anything more to say on living in oblivion no, no, I think um, I'm I'm done. Yeah, I just wanted to say that Catherine, I love Catherine Keener and and Steve Buscemi, and they were brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, the film. Uh, I, I do one last thing. Like the film did win one award. It won the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award at the 1995 Sundance Film Festival. Nice for Tom Decilio. So yeah, it won an award, and I'm hoping an Apple that... award. And Apple, yeah. So I'm hoping that people who listen to this, this, you know, will see the film 
and kind of give it its due and, and kind of, like I said, discover a gem of a film, I think. So, that's kind of us done on oh. not only Living and Living and the Cameraman, but also our 125th birthday Buster Keaton Spectacular. Spectacular. So, next week we are starting our Halloween celebration. Yes, we were doing... So, the, <laughs> going a bit behind the scenes a little bit, the compromise to doing three episodes on Buster Keaton was that I was to do th- I was allowed to have three episodes on Halloween. Um, hey, I love Halloween better more than you, probably. So I was not... It, it, you didn't have to twist my arm <laughs> um i think i think i yeah i was a bit worried about doing horror films um i was a bit bit concerned about doing horror films with the, in the podcast but i'm glad we, we've got three weeks coming up um three weeks in which i filled some very very horrible blind spots and so um, do i and so do you um so next week we kind of start off with the cabinet of dr caligari uh from 1920 directed by robert fine he's german so i'm going to go with fina there we go got there eventually um i think i i don't speak german all that well but i think it's fina fina um and then we are watching this with uh the texas chainsaw massacre 1974 directed by toby hooper um i yeah <laughs> i am looking forward to this i'm i'm very much looking i'm cabinet dr caligari we had when we had a discussion on on metropolis you know i was i was said that i wanted to watch more german expressionism and this is the first german expressionist film since metropolis um that i've watched so i'm really kind of intrigued to see or i won't say the differences but like the similarities i think is a better word to use yeah yeah I think um, te- I think yeah I, I I'm looking forward to to discussing it so yeah and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre which has this incredible reputation behind it um and having a discussion with somebody who's never seen it before is quite an, always an exciting one um so look out for that guys everybody next week um so with that in mind uh Danny where can we find you on the internet you can find me on Twitter at Kino Jones and my website is kinojones.co.uk and you can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler and my website is supertomovision.com. Um, like Danny said earlier on in the podcast, uh, you can contact us on email at uh, on keenatomic at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter at keenatomic. Um, so with that in mind, it's a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me.